Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on musician Rudy Sarzo. Over the last 40 plus years, Rudy has played with a who's who of iconic artists. He was a founding and an integral member of Quiet Riot, where he played alongside guitarist Randy Rhodes in the band's early years. After a stint in Angel, he joined Rhodes in Ozzy Osbourne's touring band. He's played and recorded with Whitesnake, Dio, Blue Oyster Cult, and many, many others. Today, he's the bassist for the Guess Who. But that's not entirely the ground we cover. We talk about Rudy's path out of Cuba in the early 60s, what life was like in America for him during that decade as he learned the ways of his new home, and the role music and spirituality play in his life. If you think you know Rudy Sarzo, but especially if you don't, this episode will introduce you to a very, very special musical soul. Enjoy. Rudy. Lawrence, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Oh, that's great to hear, man. That's great to yes, hear. Yes, sir. So nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. Um, before we get started, I have to ask, mm-hmm. um, how are you and yours? Are you holding up okay? Is everybody healthy and yes. all right? Okay. Um, we're blessed, healthy. Uh, it's all good. I just had my second vaccine a couple of Sundays ago. Yeah. Oh, great. So does that mean... Uh, I mean, you're going to get off the couch and back to work? <laughs> I bet, I'm busier than ever now. I mean, I'm hard, if I'm ever on the couch, I'm just sitting sitting, watching tutorials on, on YouTube and practicing. So, yeah, if I'm sitting on the couch, I got something in my hands or I'm sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, so you still practice, huh? Oh, God. No, I actually, I, I, I don't call it practice. I call it learning. Because practice to me is going over stuff that you already know, and I'm more interested in expanding my my knowledge. That's amazing. I, I want to come back to that a little later in okay. the conversation. But um, sure. I wonder if you would do me the favor of mm-hmm. um, would you say your full name? Like, yeah. I, I, <laughs> well, my full name is Rudy Sarzo. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. about your birth name? My birth name, that's a whole different thing. Uh, Rodolfo Maximiliano Sarso La Vieja Grande Ruiz Paire Chamont. Wow. Yeah. That's a beautiful name. It sounds beautiful to hear. Exactly. So, um, Timai, tell me a little bit about um, about the first few years of your life. Could you talk to me a little bit about Cuba? Well, it's not that I don't remember Cuba. It's just that I do remember because it, it, it left quite an impression because... What happened was there was Cuba, then there was no more Cuba. <laughs> so whatever, you know, as a child, I, I, uh, I arrived in the United States in 1961. I was born in 1950, so in November 18th. So uh, from September to November, that's about three or four months shy, three months shy of being, uh, uh, becoming yeah, 11 years old. So, you know, at that age... Uh, and and also in a, in the Latin culture, I mean, uh, yeah, there's especially <laughs> there's two things I want to be specific about: the time, 
It was the 50s, early 60s. Things were different. Okay, also the culture was different than your typical Anglo, you know, U.S. standard culture, especially back in the 60s, because now it's like more, more multicultural. And my experience as a, uh, uh, as a refugee, now we came to the country legally. We, it took my family about a year, year and a half to get all the paperwork. We had to get the visa, the passports, somebody to sponsor us from the United States to allow us to, to enter. And you cannot leave Cuba on a flight without the proper documentation. So it's not like we came illegally here. No, we didn't. And, uh, but still, we were refugees, which is a big, big difference from just being an immigrant. If you're an immigrant, you can go back to your country. I couldn't, I couldn't go back to Cuba. I'm a refugee. I'm a political refugee, to be exact. And uh, so, as a matter of fact, I was stateless up until 1982, 83, when I got my citizenship. 83, definitely 83. And uh, so, you know, so it, it, was, it was a little bit different uh, for me growing up. I knew that there was no coming back as long as it was still a communist country, and it, and it still is. As a matter of fact, I'm not even a Cuban citizen anymore. You know, you, you can, you can, the average person can have dual citizenship. Like if you're Canadian, you move to the United States, you can, you know, like in our case, uh, our drummer, Gary Peterson from the band that I play in, uh, the Guess Who. And uh, so, but I don't have that. So I really refuse to go back to Cuba as, as a tourist because that's all I would be. And I'm not a tourist. I was so born there. Have you never been back? Wow, that's what is that? Um, I mean, it's still a communist country. It's still a dictatorship. I mean, I, I'm in tune. I, I'm on social media with with the local uh, uh, news coming from you know the opposition. The people don't want to be liberated from communism, you know, and it's just, it's it's pretty gruesome. It's been since day one. Yeah, was was your did your family like did they lose? their holdings and their property like what, how did it impact your family what was yeah, the I mean, growing up uh my family was middle class so they lost their middle middle class stuff that they that, that my father as a working you know working man uh gave up you know my whole family gave up and stuff but you know you can put a price on freedom you can't it's 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 priceless you know so whatever furniture and whatever money my family could not take out of, of the bank that they might my, my, my family had saved because this is what happened once Cuba become became the Castro the new revol the re after the revolution let's say uh, things changed dramatically uh, the uh, the monetary the bill changed and so the if you had a bunch of uh, let's say if you have been saving and and bank, the banking system was very different back in the 50s as it is, especially in Cuba as it is today. Today, everything's computerized. You can see what your account is and everything is, is on the up and up. Back then, it was like a little book. <laughs> okay, you know, you deposited some money and somebody signed it. So it was kind of like, you know, and the, uh, the interest rate wasn't really that great. So my, my, my family, just like a lot of people, just stashed money at home, you know, savings. It was there. And so one day Castro goes on TV, this is right after the revolution, and announces that the, the old bills were going to be worthless. And, and uh, any money that you had in the bank, you could only withdraw about 150 
dollars per month and everything is becomes frozen you know all the all the industries be, uh, are nationalized just like it happened in venezuela recently so this is you know it's it's that's how communism works but but anyways going back to my own personal experience uh yeah my my family left everything it was just kind of like if we were the way my mom puts it was we packed as many clothes as we were going on on a weekend you know, going out for, you know, going, going to a retreat or something. Yeah. And that's how we left, you know, and, but then again, you know, there was a lot, we, I came to the United States in between Bay of Pigs and the, the October crisis, the missile crisis. So back then it was still a lot of hope. Kennedy was alive. You know, they were, they were, they were finding ways how to get rid of Castro, uh, one way or the other, and what they did is they they got rid of Kennedy. <laughs> and that that has yeah. that, never been, you know, the the approach towards Cuba, liberating Cuba, has never been the same after after Kennedy got shot. Yeah, you know, my uh, you know. my dad was a Marine at the Bay of Pigs. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, he uh, is very interesting. He he didn't talk about it much, but um, mm-hmm. you know, he was just he was just that older generation, very quiet guy. But he said uh, it was exactly as you would imagine. He said there was no there was no leadership. It was a shit show. And um, and the Marines on the ground were left in barely a better position than the than the Cuban forces. You know, there were the, mm-hmm. the support never came. The support, the support never, never came. came. Yeah. 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 Um, so you grew up in a Cuban community in Miami. Is it sort of that sort of what, what an American would think of, of that sort of Cuban mm-hmm. exile community in Miami? Interesting, interesting. Uh, well, this is what happened, uh, and it has to do with many things. There's a lot of. There's not just one single factor that was more uh, determined the the future of Miami and the and the Latin community. It was many different factors. One of them being geographical. That uh, any Cuban that would leave Cuba. And go, Miami would be as close as to Cuba as possible, whether it is in, in, your, in your psyche or, or whether it actually is uh, uh, geographical. You know, weather-wise, even though in Miami we don't get the trade winds that we get in Cuba being an island, Miami, if, since we're so close to the Everglades, we get more of the swamp heat yeah. humidity, <laughs> you yeah. know, you know. And having to be in the Gulf, it kind of like pushes us down. It's just, it's, but, but it feels like, still feels like you're, you're, if you, if you're in Key West, you're 90 miles away from, from, you know, from, from Cuba. Yeah. So, in your, yeah. It's, so in ideology uh, wise, it is as close in the United States as you, as you can be to Cuba. So, but what happened was there was not enough jobs when my family in 1961, when they, when they moved to, to, uh, to Miami, uh, uh, Miami was a whole different, different destination. It was more of a retirement community for, you know, people from up north. They were moving basically to Miami Beach, investing in Miami Beach uh, real estate, you know, like their, uh, their retirement money and, you know, buying property and stuff like that. So here you have a bunch of Cubans coming in. It's like, what is what is this going to do to the economy? What is it going to do to, to the value of the of the real estate to investments? You know, there was a lot of powerful people in 
and and who were you know like let's say Arthur Godfrey or Jackie Gleason who had bought a lot of property down there. There was a lot of investors, you know, and uh, there was this 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 concern that the influx of Cubans was going to create uh, a uh, a negative environment, investment environment. So and the fact that there were not enough jobs. So my family was offered just like to a lot of Cubans in Miami at the time to relocate. So we, uh, so we joined the relocation program and we wound up in New Jersey, West New York, New Jersey in 1963. And uh, that's when I was named Rudy. That's when I became Rudy. And uh, my first day in school, public school number five, West New York, my, uh, I walk in the classroom and the teacher says, yeah, yeah, there's, a, there's an empty desk in the back. Go ahead. And I go and I'm like, you know, getting my books and inside the desk and I hear Rudy, Rudy. And I go, you know, I'm not paying attention because that's, I never, I, I don't even know where Rudy was at the time. And <laughs> so I just, I just happened to look up and I see a teacher pointing at me, says, yes, you. And I go, no, uh, Rudolph, because I went from Rodolfo to Rudolph in Miami. I thought, this is as American as I'm going to get. <laughs> then I went to Jersey. It was Rudy. And I go, no, Rudolph. And he goes, no, Rudy, you're Rudy from now on. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm a kid. I'm trying to adapt, you know, go under the radar. That cost too much. Uh, you know, plus I was very chubby. And back in the, uh, back in the, uh, in the 60s, being chubby, you know, as a matter of fact, if you ever watch Mad Men, which is from the 50s and the 60s, you can't find any fat people there, you know. <laughs> you know? That's the way it was. I mean, you know, we, 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 we didn't have the impact of fast food and all these, you know, uh, hormones in our food back then. And it was a whole different uh, infrastructure of distributing food. There was not that many supermarkets that, you know, trucking food all over the country and stuff like that. So, but that's a whole different uh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you, when you talk about your experience in that particular, you know, let's call it 61 to 63 or 64. Yeah. I promise I won't spend an hour on this, but I just find it. Um, it's just an interesting, it's just, mm. it's, it's interesting to talk yeah. about. Um I think about what the age you were at, right? And the self-consciousness that comes with being a teenager. And you mentioned, you know, wanting to fit in and fly under the radar. Um, does, that, does that period of time um, merge at all or dovetail at all with when music became a thing for you? Um, was music a refuge, refuge for you? Was it a place where you met with other kids or was it where you went to for solace? Like, can you talk a little bit about music as your coping mechanism or as your way into um, you know, into relationships with other kids? Yeah. Um, yes, to give you a quick bullet point timeline. 63, uh, November, Kennedy gets shot. Okay. So the whole nation is mourning. So we have, uh, there was one football game. That was the Thanksgiving football game because Kennedy was a big fan of football. And, and that happened. But after that, everything else went to a halt. Thanksgiving was like doom and gloom. Christmas, uh, New Year's Eve, you know, it was kind of like, like, like COVID for this generation. That was our, you know, lockdown, basically. Wow. 
spiritual and you know we, we we just felt like you know how could this happen in the united states you know we we thought we were you know, protected it was kind of like the the 9-11 also how can that happen in the united states well how can kennedy get shot in the united states you know how could this happen here in my generation you know we were just kids and we were like Okay, you know, I get it. Uh, it's incredibly sad, especially for me, because I, it had a whole different meaning. Kennedy, Kennedy to, to most Americans, or the majority of Americans, it was their president. To me, it was kind of like my potential savior of my country. Yeah. The only person who stood up, you know, to a communist regime where I came from, you know. So it was like once I lost Kennedy, it was like I lost all hope. Because no mention ever again of Cuba, especially after the missile crisis. Yeah. You know, it was no effort, no effort. It was just, okay, we have the uh, embargo and that's it. That was that, it, nothing. It, it did not mo- progress towards, you know, getting rid of a communist regime in my country. So, uh, so in 1964, this Ed Sullivan show, February, <laughs> this thing happened. <laughs> and it just, uh, it was the, the, the beginning of the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so um, it sounds like where you're going is that you had a similar experience to a lot of other kids of your generation, which was you saw that thing. And you said, oh, my, what is that? I, I, I want some of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it was really interesting growing up in urban uh, New Jersey, right on the Hudson, right across from New York City. That's why the city is called West New York. <laughs> you know, right up, you know, right uh, around Union City and, you know, where uh, the Hudson Tunnel and and all of that. It's, it's, it's right there. And the. Uh, so what happened is this, you know, I, I have gone from Cuba. I mean, Cuba was pretty uh, diverse in culture, especially Havana. Because, uh, I mean, right out, after Columbus and all the natives were wiped out, we just had, you know, the unfortunate African uh, slavery, you know, just, uh, just like most of, uh, most of the Caribbean, you know. And so that became part of our culture. And uh, fortunately, with time, it's, you know, uh, what is really interesting about Spanish colonials, and I'm not, I'm not I, I hate colonialism. I know I am a product of that because, you know, my ins- our ancestors hundreds of years ago, which had nothing to do with me, all I can do is, uh, you know, have a perception, my own perception today. You know, and colonialism has happened all over, all over, all over the world. You know, Africa. You know, the British colonializing, uh, you know, Africa and, and other European countries, and and so on. But but staying to to my own experience here, and um, you know, in in Cuba, uh, you know, the African culture was a big big part of of. Uh, of the Cuban experience, especially like, a, you know, after, well, after Cuba was liberated in, in 1902. And uh, there was more emphasis on nationalism and celebrating, you know, what is Cuban rather than to being a colony of Spain. 
you know. And uh, musically, you know, I mean, if we had a ghetto in, in Havana, it was everybody lived there. It wasn't just one particular culture or nationality. Uh, we had an influx of, uh, of Jewish uh, citizens coming from Poland, mainly, around 1940s, right. you know. Uh, we had Chinese running away from communist China. And <laughs> I laughed because when Castro came in, my, Chinese, my family Chinese friends, my mom and dad's friends, were Chinese who had come from China, escaping communism there, Mao Zedong. They, they, they were the first ones to leave. They told my, my, my mom and dad, hey, we left this in China. You, you should leave here too because we know what's coming. Yeah, we know how this ends. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, so that's why my family, you know, pretty early on, they, they started getting, getting in gear because they were warned, you know. And uh, so, you know, we have a lot of diversity in Cuba just because of, you know, being a, uh, a country that was uh, almost like the Latin American gateway to the United States. There was a lot of industries from the United States that had, uh, you know, invested in the in tobacco and, and coffee and uh, liquor and and so on infrastructure. You know, um, we had casinos for better or for worse. You know, and uh, so you know, it, it was the it was it was a different. I, I was I was not used to the civil social structure in the United States, which I became part of because, you know, I was a minority. So in, um, where it, whereas in Cuba, they really didn't have minorities. I mean, we have in a cultural status, we have minorities in a financial status, majorities, but, you know, but as far as culturally, not really, not really, you know, not, not like in the United States, you know. And what, so when, we, when my family moved to New Jersey, one of the things that I experienced was the, uh, a bit of separation. And I'm talking about 1963, 64, 65. You know, it was kind of like you had neighborhoods. You had the Italian neighborhood. Right. And you had like the, the Polish and the Irish and and the black neighborhood. And there was really barely any Latino neighborhood. So when we went, we, we couldn't say, well, we're going to move into a, the Latin neighborhood of West New York or Union City or something like that. Later on, it became because there was more influx of, uh, of, uh, of the relocation program. But we were one of the first to arrive there. And now if you go to West New York, there's a lot of Cubans there that stayed. My family decided to move back down to Miami, though. But, that, but that's like later on in the story. But uh, so I, it was that division. Division, it was kind of like in school, Italian kids hung out with Italian kids and, you know, the Jewish kids and, and the Polish and the Irish uh, we didn't really have that many blacks in our community. That was more towards Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. And uh, but the, me being Latino, I was like, it was maybe two or three other kids in school, you know. So what happened was that when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan, 
that night, the next morning, all the kids in school, we, we have pompadours back then, you know, kind of like Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, you know. And then we suddenly we started, you know, combing our hair down, getting bangs, you know. And which for me, it was really a plus. It's kind of like wearing the mask now with COVID, you know. <laughs> I'm 70 years old. So I'm going to keep wearing that mask. <laughs> it's, part of, it's part of my fashion <laughs> look, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, so music just, music really brought everybody together. Now, all of a sudden, you're connected. Oh, did you see the Beatles? Yeah, it was great. So now you got conversation and it's like, yeah, I, I know two, two chords. Uh, I can show them to you, you know. And it became a way, it, it was, became our social media, the music, the fashion. Uh, going to, to school dances now. If you, if you were a band, now you got to play songs, not just by the Beatles, but, you know, the whole thing. Whatever was that became top 40. Uh, Beach Boys, uh, Rolling Stones, Kinks, you name it. Yeah. You know? Do you remember any of your first experiences on stage or the first oh, yeah. experience? Yeah. The first experience. Never forget it. Uh, it was actually a proscenium stage, uh, like a oh. actual theater stage, but in a small locale. And, you know, it was one of those battle of the bands, you know, just like a bunch of kids, garage bands, you know, just making a, this noise. And I, I stood on stage. And I saw a shield and a uh, kind of like energy, energy shield between the audience and me. And it kind of like made me feel safe that I was not going to be hurt somehow. That was, that was my first impression. Wow. Yeah. That you weren't going to be hurt. Wow. But yeah, hurt by, I- the, by the energy of the audience or the vulnerability of being on stage performing or... It just made me feel safe, whether I was going to get hurt uh, emotionally or physically. It's all the same. Hurt, hurt is hurt. Yeah. But that, I, that, that, I, that was being protected. That, that this it was always like being my home. This is my home. This is, this is. And, and I've, I've, you know, I, people ask me, do, you ever, do I ever get nervous when I go on stage? And I go, no, if I'm prepared, which is. 99.9. The only time I'm not prepared if it's a really a jam. And I'm talking about a jam that some, it happens. You happen to be somewhere and somebody says, hey, you want to get up on stage and play with us? You know, whatever song. And I've done that many times through, through, my, through the last 40 years. And that's the only time that I really don't know what's going to happen. But otherwise, it's all pretty much, it starts with getting ready, getting dressed. You know, looking in the mirror and you're putting your clothes on and it's almost like like going to battle. I guess. Yeah, you That's put on your point. uniform. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, because for me, sound checks, I do the worst sound checks because I'm not in that frame. I, I have not become that individual that's gonna perform that night. I'm just checking the sound and you know, going through some stuff if there's a new song or something. But once once that, you know, that half hour or hour before I leave my room, wherever I happen to be traveling, and I put on my clothes and 
It's a whole thing. So when I hit the stage, I am that guy. You know, That's amazing. Yeah. You're almost describing the difference between the technician who shows up at soundcheck and sort of the artist or the performer who shows up at showtime. Sort mm -hmm. of the, that's, that's a, that's a fascinating distinction. That's really, I mean, it makes complete sense, especially when you think about yeah. some of the, um, well, actually I, I was going to make, I was going to, I'll say it, but I, I don't even agree with it. As I say it, I was going to say, especially in like hard rock and heavy metal music where mm -hmm. there is more performance and more, um, uh, you know, costuming and, and preparation, but I guess yes. you would see it. I think a jazz guy puts on his tuxedo. Yeah, but okay. The guys that I grew up with were the guys that any generation today, tomorrow will still try to figure out how did these guys do it. Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix without his image. Still Jimi Hendrix, the musician. But it's the whole package that makes the difference between those guys and somebody who might be a great guitar player and then you put him on stage and it's like, I can, I can listen to you. What you're doing is not entertaining me. It's giving me musical, it's feeding my musical soul. But as far as, as entertainment, I'm not being entertained. I could use it as a, as a lesson, like, wow, let me check that out. Oh, yeah, he's doing this, he's doing that. Yeah, that's, but that's not entertainment. You know, I, I watch videos of incredible musicians who are showing their, their knowledge of music every single day. Then some, 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 somewhere along the line on YouTube, you're going to see like, okay, uh, also you can watch him perform on stage. <laughs> and I go, yeah. Because I'm not watching this person to be entertained by the person. I'm listening to this person to learn from the person. You know, I grew up on a, on a in, in the age of entertainment. Anytime, case in point, the British invasion was was brought to us in the Ed Sullivan Show. Ed Sullivan Show, where the Beatles will follow Topo Gijo. And, and the dancing poodles will follow the Beatles. It's entertainment. The Beatles entertained me. And along the way, they, they wrote the, uh, they created blueprint for how to be the greatest band in the history of music. Music, songs, songs, songs. They, they were about a cultural phenomena. They were, they led our generation. They, 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 helped us to have different perceptions open open each one of them is almost like each was like a guru in their own in their own right you know to our generation of course of course we've grown from that but they were the, the first ones to to expose us to spirituality you know whether it was the indian meditation or or looking at spirituality more of, of less of a, of a organized religion and the spirit and your relationship with the creator. Things like that. Who was doing that before that in music? 
I mean, unless you were listening specifically to gospel music, then you got that out of that. But as far as pop music, nobody else did. Nobody else had the, the insight and the courage that, because it, that could have cost their careers. But no, it just enlightened us, enlightenment, enlightenment through music, you know. Yeah. And that's what I grew up with. And we're talking about musicians who were craftsmen. You know, the bands that I adore, that I still listen to, those musicians not only were tra trailblazers, but still the amount, not only of talent, but uh, the time that they devoted to their craft. Jimmy Page spending years as a studio musician, working with all these different bands, and then, you know, going to the Arbors and then putting Led Zeppelin, the new, that, which came from the Arbors to the New Yorkers to Led Zeppelin and having a vision to expand and making sure that every record, except for the first two records, which are pretty similar in style, they just kept evolving. And then yeah. the Beatles did the same thing. And Hendrix and you got, yes, you got Emerson, Lake and Palmer, King Crunch. I mean, I can just rattle off just names of bands. You know, these guys were monster musicians. Monster. And they were entertainers. When you were growing up, being so close to Manhattan, did you see a lot of live music? Did you go into New York or was that a whole other a world kid. away? Or, yeah. I was a child. I was a child. I, I'm, I'm talking about, I had just turned 13 when I, when the Beatles, you know, I, I, at 13, living in an, in an area like that, and my parents, you know, coming, it, it's, it was still the 60s, early 60s. We we're just pretty close to the 50s, you know. It, to me, it didn't start really come, becoming the 60s until the in, in 67, the summer of love. Yeah. That defined, that everything changed. Everything went from black and white to color. Or, and where were you then? I was, I was back in Miami oh, okay. in 67. Yeah, yeah my, 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 my family could not take another winter. And they were getting worse and worse. You're talking about climate change. I got, I got videos of New if that my dad, because my, my dad was really into uh, taking home movies, of, of the cars being just, you know, snow covering the cars. You couldn't even see the cars, you know. So, you know, yeah, I've been experiencing brutal uh, winter since, uh, since 1963. <laughs> <laughs> you had enough of that. <laughs> I've had enough of that, yeah. Yeah, so my family will move back to Miami yeah. in 67, were, yeah. Were you ever on another career path other than music? Yes. I wanted to be a, a, a double-knot spy, just like Jethro Bodine. <laughs> I did. I thought, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I was a kid. Yeah. In the 60s, in, in the land of everything is possible here, you know, and, and I thought James, James Bond was a really good, good role, role model back then. <laughs> How far did you get? <laughs> uh, I got a little bit further than I should have. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. I I just took took some self defense classes because you have to. They really didn't have a much of a of a uh, James Bond program at my my college. <laughs> so no. when, when I went to orientation, uh, whoever was in charge, you know, it was it was like, well, what we can offer you is some. Uh, Classes that would uh, uh, it was kind of like the 
preparing me to enter a, the world, uh, a world of dip- diplomacy, right. diplomatic, attaché, you know, doing like that. So I do suggest that you take some uh, self-defense class, which will actually judo, old-fashioned judo, you know, and, uh, and some other courses, kind of like preliminary, like, uh, you know, this and that 101. And I did that on my first semester. And I said, you know what? Forget about it. I was, I was already playing in bands. I was already a musician. So uh, I took my music course, you know, started, you know, studying uh, harmony and theory and so on. But at the same time, we got a gig. And my first, this is 1969, my first uh, club band. We went from being playing in parties locally in Miami to playing in clubs. And my first club is a topless, topless bar. And there were more than topless, you know. And, you know, <laughs> growing up in the Latin culture, I had never seen a naked girl in front of me before. A live one. <laughs> <laughs> a live one. <laughs> yeah, a live one. And uh, that, was, uh, that was an experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting. So, but, but what happened was playing, you know, I, I, I picked my, my courses so I could do it in the morning. I have the, uh, the, uh, the afternoon free. And then I, and then we got the gig and it was like, I wasn't getting any sleep and I didn't even ha- own a car then. So quickly I saved money, got me a car, but by then I had to change my, 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 uh, my uh my courses and went into mass communication which is what the the remaining of my courses you know of the of my my time in college was mass communication radio television motion picture uh producing and directing and uh, because this this what ha- this, this is my perception of the curriculum for music in the school there, there wasn't it wasn't like it is today that you can actually be a aspiring rock musician and, and benefit from the courses. No, it was more geared towards classical or big band, which is not what I was doing. I, you know, I was playing in clubs at night and playing more advanced than I was being taught. So yeah. to me, it was going like. You know, how long do I have to go through this until it catches up with what I'm already doing, you know? So that's when I say, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm already doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm already a professional musician, not a recording artist, but, a prof- you know, playing in bars. Professional musician. So let me, let me get into something else that might, you know, give me, expand my possibilities of employment. And that was mass communication. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I... I, I was inducted into the Hall of Fame last year of, of my college. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, it's interesting that you frame it that way because it was something I wanted to ask you about, which is my perception of your career is really that of a working professional musician. Like, so I have a couple of questions along that, that line. One is, um, it's just fascinating to me when I look at a lot of the, um, the situations you were in over the years where, uh, you know, you joined a lot of bands or you were recruited for a lot of bands. And as a result, like your willingness to do that and not have to be the guy, whether that's because you manage your ego well or you just have a different personality, it seems like that served you well in an ability to stay employed and to stay in your chosen field. 
because you would be willing to go maybe play somebody else's parts that they recorded um, when you're in the touring band. Like not everybody can do that. I think some people would say, well, I didn't record on the album. I'm not playing those songs or, you know, things like that. It feels like it's really suited you to be able to um, adapt to different situations and adapt to different group dynamics. And I can't help but think that that has a lot to do with being a young person. I'm going to play psychologist and being a young person coming to a completely different culture, moving around a little bit, learning to adapt. Um, but do you see that in yourself? And is there something special about how you've managed your career in those situations? That's your perception. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Mine, mine, which is my reality, uh, is based on, you know, when I was in Quiet Riot, the version with, with Randy, I was not a hired gun. I was a member of the band locally. Quiet Riot, fast forward to Metal Health, the same. It was the band that I wanted, that I wanted to be in as a, the guy, right? Yeah. Okay. So that was my every every time that you see in my timeline, Quiet Riot, Quiet Riot. I am the guy in Quiet Riot, not the guy who's actually playing, you know, a catalog of music pre-recorded by some other bass player. Let's say like yeah. I am now in the Guess Who, dating back to '65. You know, I just played on a couple of songs on the last record, and we're working on a new record. But the bulk of our set has already been originally recorded by somebody else, then I am not the guy. I happen to be the guy that moment, but another guy in the timeline of that group. But Quiet Riot is. Yeah. And Quiet Riot, you know, me being in a band that is a founding member or equal, equal member, you know, of that group, it's, it's what I always aim for. As a matter of fact, when I, when I, when I got the call to join Ozzy, I turned it down because I was already in another band, uh, Angel, yeah. as, a, as a member of the band. Even, and even though I would have been the third bass player, it's still, we're still starting brand new. And, and we were going to uh, working on, on a record and all of that. I was going to be the guy at that moment in the band. But with Choir Riot, you know, it was, it was the band. I always wanted to be in that situation. After I left Choir Riot in 85, Tommy and I, we spent a couple of years trying to put a band again, you know, and it did not work out. And it just gets to a moment that you're going to say, well, I mean, it, you know, I've worked harder at my failures than I've done at my successes. So sometimes you just bang your head against the wall for so long that you can say, okay, no, it's, it's not the right time. Let's take a breather. We have this opportunity to play in this great band that we've been invited to join and, and let's do it. That's what makes sense. You know, otherwise it would be a very, very bad decision yeah. not to do that. And then I went back with Quiet Ride in 97 after having played uh, with White Snake. And then the band imploded in 2003. And then I joined uh, Deal, which I love playing with Ronnie. You know, it's at the end of the day, what I take away from all, all the bands I've ever been in, it's, it's the people in the band. You know, if I would have, if Quiet Riot would have been my only band ever and ever, I would have never played with Ronnie James Dio. And that meant so much to me. If, 
if 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 the band Quiet Right would have gotten signed in the seventies and we just kept going, I would have never played with Ozzy. You know, Tommy Aldrich, Steve Vai, Tony McAlpine. I mean, the list goes on and on. Adrian Vandenberg. You know, play with the guess who? Play with Ingve. You know, so it's it's like I look back and I go, "Wow, how blessed have I been?" You know, because. You mentioned that that you know I, I am a working man. I, I got to tell you, you know, when I what I consider work is something that you get money, you get paid for. Everything else, it's I do a lot of just like many other musicians today. I do a lot of projects that they're just for charity, or they might be just as a tribute. I've done a whole bunch of these, and a tribute to other artists. And I, I, I put as much love and care into what I record, all my parts, as I would if I was playing in a potential million-selling record. Because my name goes on that track. Oh, that's Rudy playing. The last thing you want to hear is like, wow, whatever happened to Rudy? Oh, he's getting old. He's, look at him. He can't play anymore. No, no, you got to keep dazzling them with every single note that you play. You go like, whoa, look at, oh, that's different. Wow, I didn't expect that. Oh, whatever. You know, it's the day that I, I consider that I cannot do that anymore. That it, it's done. What's the point? Yeah. Are, is the, um, does it get physically harder? Um, either to perform at the level you want to or to live the lifestyle in terms of touring or um, like what goes into being able to maintain yourself um, to be able to like stay healthy, to be able to stay nimble. Um, has that changed? Has your routine changed over the years? Well, yeah, again, this is multi-layered uh, because there's so many things to consider uh, this year around this time marks 40 years that I, that I started going on the road. And I'm talking on the road, playing, you know, arenas. And, and uh, uh, because before that, I did 10 years of jumping in the van. <laughs> that to me doesn't count. <laughs> I mean, it counts, you know, but not at that level. I mean, to me, the clock starts ticking when you like you, you're actually either a touring in a professional recording that international band or are international recording artist. And, uh, that happened to me 40 years ago, almost to the date. So, uh, you know, 40 years later, I've been married for 36 years. I want to spend as much time as someone as possible. So, you know, being in a band like the guess who really works for me because I get to play great music, the soundtrack of my life, great musicians, great guys, great performance. And uh, I get to be home at least half, half of the week. Yeah. So balance, balance. And then, and then when I'm home, I do other projects, other passions, you know, and then I go back out again. So, you know, they, they, I, I try to make it as easy as possible for me. You know, there's certain airlines that I, I, I take by choice and, and uh, I pace myself. And then what I do is the older I get, the harder I, I work out. Just so when I'm performing, I, I'm not as tired because remember at my age, any performer that's actually celebrating their own legacy or the legacy of, of, of the musicians that they perform with, 
our audience expects, I'll put it this way, they might not expect it. They might be surprised by, surprised by it. But to me, a perfect night is when we become a time machine, a time capsule. We're memory merchants and make that audience feel, you know, like teenagers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I talked to, I got, you know, I'm, I'm a big Rolling Stones fan and I, I go mm -hmm. see them, you know, whenever I can. And people always say to me, I don't know, Stones tickets are so expensive. I don't know if I should go. I don't want to see, you know, Mick Jagger at 78 years old. And I, I've been going to see them, you know, since the 80s. And I say to yeah. people, they, some nights are better than others for sure, like any other band. But first of all, there's never a bad night. And mm -hmm. second of all, they only do it and they only charge what they charge because they know they're that good. Like they yeah. actually deliver a band like the Rolling Stones doesn't go on tour just to steal your money. Mm. They go on tour because one, it's what they do. And two, mm. they, they do it probably better than ever because they're healthier. They're clean. Mm. Uh, yeah. They're where, you know, they've got the benefit of 60 years of rehearsal. <laughs> if yeah. You, will. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, yeah. so it's, it's, I think, I think seeing, seeing that generation of musicians is it's to me, it's revelatory every time. Like I've never seen any, any band of that era feel like they're just punching the clock. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've seen a few that I still love and respect, you know, but I would not go and see them again. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's hard to get off that stage, you know, and you just don't want to become that, that boxer that has been on the ring, you know, one round too many get all punchy and, you know, and it becomes sad, you know, and uh, you don't want to do that. So what you do is I, I work my body harder now than, than I used to. As a matter of fact, I, I just put a gym together in my house <laughs> during COVID. I couldn't go to the gym and I said, screw this. I got room. I just put, I, and I put bench weights and I got my treadmill. I got everything. And I push myself harder now than I, than I, than I did before, just because I'm older. I'm older and I got to push my, and, and it feels good, you know, get all the endorphins going. That, that's one thing that I miss from being on stage. You, you get the adrenaline. You can't practice the adrenaline. Yeah. You know, you, you can be as prepared or rehearsed in pre-production. As soon as the audience is there, it's showtime. Oh, boy, it's all different. Different, you know, it's, it's your body it goes to a, uh, mutates into <laughs> something yeah. else. Yeah. Do you know when you're going to be on stage again? Do you have any sense yet of when that might happen? Um, we got a show coming up in March, but then we, these are shows that we've had in the calendar from last year that keeps getting moved forward. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I haven't heard of a cancellation or rescheduling for that day, but it's not in March. It's just only one day. And then in April, around April is when we're supposed to start again, kind of like on a slow, as you know, uh, getting getting the wheels running, you know. I mean, we cannot go from zero to sixty. We're gonna have to like <laughs> yeah. start rolling downhill. For, for a bit. <laughs> I, I, I was curious about that. Like, um, you know, how much time do you need to spend together before you're stage ready? Is it a week? Is it a day? Is it you don't know? <laughs> no, no. I mean, we're 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 adult professional musicians. We we rehearse on our own. By the time we hit the stage. Uh, 
individually we prepare ourselves. So will you have to play as a group? Will you have to, you know, go to SIR for an afternoon and run through the set or will you just show up and play? We've never done that. No, no, we, it's our responsibility. You know, when I get up on stage, I'm taking with, I'm bringing with me the energy, the spirit of everybody I play with. I cannot go there and, and fumble. <laughs> yeah. You know, I got to go across the goal line, score, touchdown, you know, do all of that in the name of like the people that I play with. Uh, that's a lot of integrity. You know? That's a lot of integrity. Well, it's, it's, it's reality to me, you know, it's, it's my perception of things. I don't respect to them and to their legacy and, and everything that, that, that is connected with them. Yeah. 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 So, um, you wake up in the morning, you don't have, what, uh, what music do you reach for? Like, are you still a listener? Are you still a fan? Well, make coffee. Watch the news for about five minutes. Make sure the world hasn't ended yet. Mm-hmm. And then I go straight to YouTube and I go through or tutorials that I have on video. And I'm looking to create because as an artist, you do two things in life. You create and then you recreate. Sometimes it's recreations that you created, but they're still recreations. And sometimes there are other people's creations that you recreate. So I like to create yeah. because I already spent so much time recreating that, that that's more muscle memory. You really, it's kind of like if Leonardo da Vinci painted, let's say what the Mona Lisa, right? And his neighbor goes, I love that. Can you make one for me? So I, I so I can hang it in my kitchen. Okay, how much money? Okay, great. Okay, so here we go. Mona Lisa again. And then the whole neighborhood has Mona Lisas on their walls, you know. Uh, No, no. You want to do that one great creation. That's what you're really going for. That that great, you know, song, bass line, whatever it is, arrangement. So that's what I do. I I spend a lot of time uh, writing songs. And do you know it? When you, re- when you write the song or when you record the song, do you ever walk away and say, wow, like I, that, where did that come from? And then the second part of that is when it gets out into the world, is your feeling of satisfaction or completeness ever validated by the, like, has there been a time where you've, you feel like you've hit the mark and it hit the audience as well? Sometimes uh, by the time somebody else hear it, hears it, you're onto something. <laughs> oh, because it's so far in time. <laughs> So far, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, right now, I, I just, I, I just, the last thing that I actually worked on creating something from scratch was a, uh, for a, uh, a project that I'm involved in, uh, animation. And uh, I did that. So, you know, so I did that. I did the song. It's, it's a theme song. So it has a whole different set of arrangements and, and format to it because it's a theme song you got to tell the story in 30 seconds you know and you got to keep it moving so i've worked on that 
But that was like three, four months ago because we had to get it together for that. And then that's done. So you start building on it. On a project like that, you, you build pieces, components. And right now we're at the point that we're not even thinking about that song anymore because we got that. Now we're thinking about certain, the script, character development, and things like that. So and then, so, you know, at some point, God willing, the, uh, the, uh, the show gets picked up. Then the theme songs show us up again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know and then that's when you hope like oh wow okay this theme song is part of this is introduces and tell the story the opening of, of of the show prepares the the viewer for what the show is about and if that and it accomplishes that then you've done your job you yeah, know yeah in that situation are you composing on a synthesizer or a guitar or a piano guitar. How do you comp- yeah guitar. oh really yeah yeah wow. guitar and yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, what I've been uh, practicing the most is my six-string bass. I have mm-hmm. a tune, tune like a guitar, so it's really a bass guitar, in the in the true sense of a bass guitar. Yeah, the I I'm a true believer, and I'm not the first one to think like this. I mean, there's bassists like Anthony Jackson, who is like the father of the multi-string bass. Uh, who feels like there's more to the bass that, uh, as, as an instrument than the four strings that traditionally came from the uh, upright bass mm-hmm. transfer over to, to the bass, uh, bass guitar. I see it more as an extension or really a guitar. So it can be a melodic instrument as well as a rhythmic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, I, the way I look at it is a piano. A piano, a piano is 88 keys. That's the traditional piano size it just doesn't stop at at the beginning of this cliff or it doesn't it's not this cliff it's not that cliff it's this that's how i see the bass and and but as a function a rhythmic function of single notes maybe double stops more of them but more in the format of the actual structure of the guitar itself as far as the shapes that you play the pentatonics, the majors, all the scales and every, the chords and everything in between. You know, I am, I am not just thinking, I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to play this rhythmically? But having it tuned like a guitar, it, it's more fluid movement because I don't have to be moving all over the place to get this here. I can get it here. Yeah. You know, within that same, you know, I can go basically... Two, uh, three octaves. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, three octaves on a uh, within three or four frets. So it really sounds like you're describing a bit of uh, an exploration. Like you still, you're still using, you're still searching with your instrument. You're still finding new things. There's still a process of discovery. Is that? Yeah, but it's in it's it's the same in life. It's not just my music. It's 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 life. It's spiritual exploration how can i get closer to god you know that's for me it's it's that's for me it's the ultimate music you know my family music of course everything else but as as a, as a personal journey it's how how can i how can i do every things <laughs> i look at it you know it, studying music is just studying the Fibonacci sequences, mm-hmm. Tesla, 
the sacred geometry, you know, Coltrane circle, a circle, not even a circle of fifth. It's just a whole different thing. It's more uh, uh, chromatic. Uh, and then, then spirituality, you know, there's, it's, it, there's an order to things in life. I mean, if you look at the cosmos, what keeps all the cosmos from all of a sudden as they're traveling, start colliding and exploding. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you're going to have an occasional black hole here and there, but it's all part of the order of, of God's creation. You know, I, and when I say God, you know, I say, okay, God, you know, no, I mean, I, I, I look at it in the, it's the spiritual energy, the creator. Mm-hmm. the creator of everything, you know, and uh, that's, that's why that's, that's my exploration in which, uh, which crosses over to music and, and, you know, how can I improve my, how can I be a better family man and, or be a better human being, be a better neighbor. It's all an exploration. You, you're always trying to find, finding out ways of how to do things according to, you know, I call it God's law, but you know, some people call it the laws of the universe. But then again, I like to dif- differentiate. There's God, the creator, and then there's the universe. The universe did not create itself. There's a creation that keeps like, expanding the, the universe with that. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. And um, thank you for giving me an hour of your time and for sharing oh, your, my pleasure. your perspectives you. and uh, your experience. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, that you perform in a band that's, that's, you know, the soundtrack of your life. And I just want you to know mm. you've been, you've been to a large extent, a big part of the soundtrack of my life. So thank you for all the music. <laughs> thank you for and, listening. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a pleasure to meet you. And I hope that you and your family stay well through all this. Thank you. You too. All right, be well, Rudy. Take you care. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Rudy Sarzo, and thank you, Craig Snyder, for making this episode happen. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.